Our Discovering Christ Covenant class um, centers around the life of the church and the importance that God places on each individual Christian's involvement uh, in the church. Uh, there's important information that every Christian needs to know before becoming a part of a church as a member. And we want to serve you over the next eight weeks by giving that information about Christ's covenant so that you can make an informed decision about becoming a member or deciding whether this is the church that God would have you join. And if not, we would want to help you uh, find and become a part of a, a another church body in the area. So this course will be sort of a, a coming to terms between you and us about what the church is, what it means to be part of a church, what it means to believe the gospel, and to be a member of Christ's body. So the first three weeks will be biblical foundations covering the broad storyline of the Bible and the particular teaching about the gospel and conversion and how that brings us into the church. Uh, these are our core beliefs and the convictions that we hold as a church. The, it's the matrix of beliefs that give rise to uh, the culture specific to this church. And then this will be followed by three weeks considering various aspects of church life. Uh, what does a healthy church member look like? How do we seek to encourage one another to continue as disciples of Jesus? What does the Bible say about Lord's Supper and baptism? And what is the church leadership structure at Christ's covenant? You know, so given those core beliefs from the first few weeks, how does that play itself out in the life of the church? How do uh, these uh, theological commitments express themselves through our church body? Theology always drives strategy. So how are those things related? And then the last two weeks will be about some nuts and bolts of our, uh, of our church life, our vision, statement of faith, core values, our bylaws, and uh, next steps in the process of becoming a member. It's basically how are we organized as a church. We believe the church is the primary display of God's glory to the watching world. Ephesians 3.10 says that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God has chosen to display his wisdom in the world through the church, and so we want to do church well. So with that said, we want to look at how we enter into that story. How do we enter into uh, God's story, his, his kingdom, which has been advancing through all of history from creation forward? What is it that makes Christ's Covenant Church a family? We all believe the same story about the world. And it's that story that unites all Christians. You know, we may disagree over minor issues, but the matters that are most important are the matters that draw us together and unite us. In other words, the most important things about Christ's Covenant Church are not the things that distinguish us from other churches, uh, but the things that we share in common with other churches, uh, specifically the gospel. And it's that sameness that is derived from the story that we tell about the world. It's really actually the story of God's kingdom in the world, uh, beginning first of all with that kingdom pattern. And so we'll look at this broad storyline of the Bible in terms of the kingdom of God, beginning with uh, number one on your outlines, the kingdom pattern. So there's one overarching story. You know, my own experience was growing up in Sunday school, hearing a lot of different stories from the Bible but not necessarily understanding how they all fit together. There was no cohesion in my mind. 
And then at some point I read a book called Dominion and Dynasty, which kind of tells the whole story of the Bible. And I remember as I was reading that book, um, this question popped into my mind that was somewhat humiliating to me. Uh, why was Israel in Egypt? Why was Israel in Egypt? I had grown up uh, going to church and gone to Bible college, but for some reason, I couldn't uh, form a clear answer to that question in my mind. You know, I knew the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors, and I knew the story of uh, the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, but I couldn't quite connect those two stories and tell you how they fit together let alone how they related to Israel's history as a whole or how the history of Israel is related to Jesus and the church. So that question kind of showed uh, some light on my ignorance and it sent me on a journey of trying to understand how it all fits together. What I want to do this morning is kind of um, is uh, hold the box top for the jigsaw puzzle up for you so you can see the story as a whole. It's something that we want to try to do regularly here at Christ's Covenant. You know, you may have some of the pieces of the puzzle or maybe many of the pieces of the puzzle in your head already, uh, but we want to constantly hold the box top up in front of you so that you know how it all fits together. So you have that, that picture clearly in your mind. What is the pattern of the kingdom in Scripture? So let's begin at the beginning. Uh, this is the story of God's kingdom, and we see this pattern of the kingdom in the very first pages of Scripture at creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what makes God truly God. He is the author of creation. He's eternal in his own nature and creating everything from nothing. And because God is the author and orchestrator of creation, God is also the king of creation. He acts like a king in the story. Uh, he gives orders, and what he says happens. His will is done. And that's why he says to all the animals that he created and filled the earth with, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He is the king, and he has right to give orders. The psalmist reflecting on this says, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. In talking about obedience with our three-year-old Olivia, I often say, Olivia, why should you obey God? Because he made us. It's that simple. He made us. And so we ought to obey him as our king and creator. So God created man in particular in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Uh, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So man is a creature because he is made by God, but man is a unique creature because he is made in God's image. So Adam and Eve are the crowning achievement of God's creation, and the question is why? Why were we created? Why are you here? The way the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it is that we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when God said, let us make man in our image, 
This implies fellowship within the triune God and fellowship between humanity and God. We were created to obey him and to respond to his commands. When he says, be fruitful, increase in number, subdue, rule over, this is establishing our role in his world, and we are to respond to it. We were created to worship and to believe him, and we were created to glorify him through stewarding his rule over creation, protecting it, and caring for it. In that way, we reflect his image. He's the king and creator, and yet he has made us Uh, to be rulers in his stead, caring well for the world he's puts us in. This is why Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So this is the pattern of God's kingdom, the blueprint of his beautiful design for the world and for people. Uh, It is this, God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. That's the pattern for the kingdom uh, that runs throughout Scripture. But then second, we must consider this kingdom perished. So if we were created to enjoy God and to glorify him, what happened? As you know, the serpent said, did God actually say? And then he questions God, which caused Eve to make her own choices. So when she saw that the tree was good for food, Uh, a logical, a practical reason. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, it was appealing to her senses, and it was to be desired to make one wise. It even seemed prudent or promising. Uh, When she saw this, she took of the fruit and ate it, and so did Adam. And this act of disobedience is not a myth or legend, it's historical reality, as historically true as the fact that you showed up in this room 12 minutes ago. They actually did this. It happened. And this is where the kingdom crumbled. Uh, Sin came into the world through one man. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam failed to live under God's rule. The man and woman set up their own rule um, and, and they break God's law. But sin is not just a matter of law-breaking, it's also law-making. They establish themselves as rulers in God's place. It's a bid to be like God, uh, to replace him as king. And so they fall out of the fellowship and the blessing that God had created them for. The result of their disobedience then is fractured relationships in every direction. Adam and Eve had been naked and unashamed, Uh, Their vulnerability posed no threat, but now that trust and intimacy are gone. Human relationships are fractured. And in the garden, uh, the lion and the lamb had played together. Adam would have run his hands through the mane of the lion, but now the lion turns on him. And Adam and Eve had afternoon walks in the garden with God, but now they are hiding in the bushes. So their relationships with creation and their relationship with God uh, now fractured as well. Man and woman, mankind and creation, mankind and God, every relationship broken. The result of sin is total and complete. And this curse covers then the entirety of the universe. Genesis 3 applies the curse to uh, the whole of creation. There's painful childbirth, there's pain and disease, death and weeds, and the uncooperative North Carolina soil, and mosquitoes. 
um, you know, all these elements of creation that seem sort of antagonistic toward one another uh, rather than harmonious. God's people reject him, and they're banished from his place and no longer live under his rule or enjoy his blessing. And so in these ways, the kingdom has perished. And yet even in the midst of this account, we see that God promises that the kingdom will be reestablished. The third point on your outline, the kingdom promised. Um, God's grace is seen, first of all, simply in the fact that he comes after Adam and Eve with a question. Where are you? God comes after them, but he doesn't just ask a question. He also makes a promise. And the promise comes actually in the form of a curse directed at the serpent. Um, the curse of the serpent is really a, a promise to man. And, it, and it's in some ways the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Uh, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise uh, your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from eternity past, God had planned to redeem a people for himself. But that plan that God had made before time is uh, revealed for the first time here in Genesis 3.15. So this first occurrence of the promise is somewhat shadowy. You know, it's not quite clear who this serpent-crushing son will be or how he'll do his work. But you've got to think that Adam and Eve uh, were just waiting for God to bring her offspring, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. But it wasn't Cain and it wasn't Abel. And in fact, Lamech hoped that it would be Noah. Several chapters later, he names his son Noah, which is the Hebrew word for rest. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one perhaps will bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech thought that Noah might be the one who would undo the curse, but it wasn't Noah either. Well, eventually God enacts sort of the next phase of this promise, that early shadowy promise, by calling Abraham and promising that through humanity, humanity will be blessed. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises that he will bring blessing where there has been curse. He will reclaim his people and he will bring them into a place he has appointed for them. And they will walk in obedience to him and enjoy his blessing. So he promises that the original kingdom will be reestablished. This promise to Abraham then in Genesis 12 connects back to that early kind of uh, shadowy promise in Genesis 3.15. And then it also thrusts forward into the remaining storyline of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So then fourth, we see this kingdom uh, partially fulfilled and prophesied throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Um, so the kingdom uh, partial and prophesied. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, 
they become the fathers of the tribes of Israel whom God allows to suffer as slaves in a country not their own, in Egypt. So God's people are not living in God's place or enjoying his blessing. But then the Exodus happens, the greatest deliverance event in the Old Testament. And it brings them this hope that they will gain that land and live under God's rule and blessing. Of course, their sin ends up precluding them from fully enjoying God. So there's this tension in the storyline of the Old Testament. God has promised to bless his people. But it seems that the greatest threat to God's promise is the people themselves. Uh, Can it really be true that God's promise is in jeopardy? You know, their sin, the sins of the kings and the people of Israel lead to the division of the kingdom and the capture and exile of God's people so that the hope that had initially seemed gained through the exodus of God's people being liberated and enjoying his blessing now seems lost for Israel through a return to exile and slavery. It's like the story of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden all over again. There's an incredibly sad commentary on the history of Israel in 2 Chronicles 36.15, which comes kind of at the end of Israel's history. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And then the end of Chronicles records how it was that God's wrath arose against his own people. Jerusalem was captured and destroyed. God's place and God's temple, God's presence and rule in the midst of his people, gone, destroyed. So the kingdom of God through the nation of Israel was very partial indeed. So what about those promises? Uh, God had given those promises to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham about the blessing that would be experienced through this offspring. Then later, God gave the law to Moses and told Israel that they had to keep the law or be cursed. So the question is this, is the promise based on Israel's law keeping or on God's promise keeping? Is the promise conditional on their ability to keep it? And this tension runs throughout the whole Old Testament. Will God keep his promises? And if so, how will he do it? Well, the prophets of Israel, especially in Israel's later history, were constantly warning God's people of judgment if they would not listen to and obey God. But the prophets also spoke of hope beyond judgment. There would be judgment and curse for their disobedience, but there was hope beyond it. After the judgment would come a new day, the day of the Lord's favor, Isaiah called it. So Hosea says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You see how Hosea then and the other prophets are pointing forward, thrusting Israel's attention to the future, prophesying a kingdom yet to come. And so ends the Old Testament, a partial kingdom, but the prophets still claiming that God's people 
will one day be in his place under his rule, enjoying his blessing. Well, then at last, Mark records of the kingdom present, the fifth point on your outline. The Gospel of Mark records, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom has finally arrived. With Jesus, the kingdom is inaugurated. All those Old Testament promises of a people, a place, and a blessing are fulfilled in Jesus as he ushers in the new reality of God's plan. And the newly reconstituted nation of Israel is not actually a new state, but rather it's an invitation to enter by faith into relationship with Jesus, regardless of your ethnicity or family tree. The contours of God's people are no longer along ethnic lines, but rather along spiritual lines. So Adam had failed, Israel had failed, but Jesus is the new and better Adam, and Jesus is the new and better Israel who goes into the wilderness like Israel did, was abandoned in the garden, but in every case, he accepts the will of the Father and walks in obedience, unspotted, unstained obedience. So he is the head of a new people for God. All those who join themselves to this new Adam, this new Israel by faith, all who are in Christ are the ones who become God's new people. God's people then are those who have faith in Jesus. So Jesus didn't come claiming to establish a political kingdom, though that's what people were expecting of the Messiah. Rather, he came to transform the political kingdom of Israel into a spiritual kingdom in Christ. This is God's new place. God's presence no longer mediated through the temple, but Jesus is now the presence of God to us. And through the Spirit, uh, we are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. He dwells in our hearts. So where is the kingdom now? Well, anywhere that men and women are worshiping God and submitting themselves to Jesus as their king uh, and thus enjoying God's rule and blessing. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus brings a new and better covenant then that redeems us from the curse of the law. He's the new king who brings these better blessings. Jesus uh, makes present this new kingdom. And then the sixth point on your outline is this kingdom proclaimed, that the kingdom is proclaimed by God's people in the world. This is the work that he has given us to do. The commission that Jesus left for his followers was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The book of Acts, then, is a record of that happening, this expanding proclamation of the kingdom as God's people are drawn into local worshiping communities with established leaders uh, together, regularly observing uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these, these ordinances that Jesus left behind for his people to observe. Um, so Paul saw his calling to preach really as a calling to form this church as the means by which God would display his glory to the world. Again, in the verse I read from Ephesians 3, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, next week we'll talk more about uh, the content of this gospel that is to be proclaimed. Uh, but the important point here is to say that God's kingdom has now taken an inaugural shape in the world. Even though the kingdom is not yet fully established in all that it one day will be, it is already present. Hebrews says, in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. So that final kingdom where all things are in visible subjection to Jesus is still to come. And yet, uh, where, we, where we do things in subjection to Jesus and, and obedience to him is in the church. This is what uh, Peter indicates in his first letter. He says <clears throat> to the churches, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the church, God's people, proclaiming uh, his mercies to the world. So the church then is a, a preview of God's people in God's place, obedient to his rule and enjoying his blessing. It's a, a preview, a foretaste of something that is still to come in perfection, the kingdom perfected, the final point on your outline. So this is the storybook ending of all God's people at last united in his place, under his rule, enjoying his blessing forever. Listen to Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The kingdom that was patterned in the Garden of Eden is here perfected. It's the Garden of Eden regained, only better. And Paul says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for this, the redemption of our bodies. So there's the progressing story of God's kingdom in the Bible, from the pattern in the beginning to its perishing and eventual regaining through Jesus Christ, uh, through whom it will one day be perfected. The kingdom move, moves forward from creation through corruption toward redemption, awaiting a future restoration. Well, there are three main reasons that we start here with our membership course and the material that we cover. First of all, because all the other material that will be covered in this course uh, occurs within the context of this story. Every piece of teaching in the Bible, every other story, every piece of doctrine in the Bible fits somewhere within this grand story. 
of redemption through Jesus Christ. So as we talk about the gospel more specifically and conversion uh, relating to the gospel next week, it relates to this story. As we talk about the church and playing our role as God's people in the world, it has to be connected to this story. Uh, as we preach through passages of scripture, we're regularly trying to connect whatever uh, passage we're in to this broad storyline of the Bible. You know, we have people in our church from Liberia, Sierra Leone, Burma, the Philippines, and America, obviously. Our nations may be discouraging, but we are people of the kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. So this kind of teaching helps us get our bearings, especially in seasons of political escalation. You know, our emotions, emotions need to be excited and calmed, not by political talk shows, because our, our spiritual antenna are tuned to this station, the story of God's Word. And we're constantly pulling ourselves back to this story, not all the other storylines that are cast for us. And so um, we, we have to relate to uh, the world through this story of the Bible. A uh, second reason is because this is the story that we want you to be able to share. Uh, even if you don't join Christ's covenant, but all the more if you do, we want you to know this story so well that you are freely able to incorporate it into your conversations with non-Christians. That you not only relate rightly to this story yourself, but that you help others do that as well. We want you to know this story for the sake of evangelism. And then third, we want you to know this story because we try to regularly teach this way. Um, it's something you should know about this church, that in every sermon and Sunday school, Bible study, and every other teaching venue, uh, we're trying to show not only what particular passages in the Bible say, but how those passages fit into the overall story. We met last week to talk about children's ministry, all the men and women who will be teaching in children's ministry. And one of the things we talk about every year during that time of orientation for the year is about being uh, centered on the gospel in the way that we teach in children's ministry. In other words, relating uh, whatever story or passage that the children are learning from to the gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ, which is the story of this kingdom. So from the children on Sunday mornings to sermons and Bible studies, we're constantly trying to do this. I hope you've already experienced that attempt if you've been here for some time. Um, certainly, if you stick around, I hope you do. Those are the reasons we go over this, and I hope that um, it doesn't feel like brand new information to you. As uh, believers, this is the story that we have grounded our lives upon.